This is Death, Dying, and Illness, the show that tries to understand the issues that plague us. I'm Elizabeth Kama. As the second wave of COVID-19 sweeps across the country, many Americans are preparing themselves for what that means. The massive loss of life, the grief, the feelings of helplessness, confusion, rage, all of it. When coronavirus came to the United States in late March and early February, for many people, it was the first time a virus had impacted them so strongly. But there's a whole community in America that has experienced this sort of enormous death, grief, and lack of control at the hands of a virus before. The HIV-AIDS epidemic began devastating the LGBTQ community in the United States in the 1980s. According to the CDC, by October 1995, there were 311,381 AIDS deaths in America in 500,000 cases. At that time, there were no effective treatments, and the virus was considered a death sentence. Currently, there have been close to 300,000 COVID deaths in the United States since March, and the numbers will only continue to grow until a vaccine is widely available. Despite the rise in cases, Harry Bro, a 75-year-old long-term survivor of HIV, has gotten past his fear of COVID-19. Bro was part of the hippie movement in the 60s and was introduced to San Francisco through shopping trips for his commune in Oregon. He remembers the early 70s as the Castro began to fill with members of the LGBTQ community as a never-ending Mardi Gras. The Compton Cafeteria riots of 1966 happened nearby and the Stonewall Riots of 1969 were gaining national attention. Bro called the 70s a time of defiance, when the LGBTQ community decided to no longer accept their persecution. There were amazing moments in the 70s where police would come in and and raid gay bars or something, and we stopped that. We got action to stop that, and... I think it's hardest for younger people to get that it was just 1970. I mean, that's, you know, I get it. It's 50 years. I get it. But it wasn't that long ago that it was against the law to be a homosexual, not to do anything, just to be one. He said that the counterculture movement in the 60s allowed him and others in the LGBTQ community the opportunity to live freely. We took that opportunity. It, I did est in 1970, 71. But there's a few phrases I remember that have kind of guided me ever since. One of them was, there's no, nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And the idea of being able to live openly in a society that tolerated you, if not totally enveloping you, without being shot at, thrown bottles at, lost apartments, lost jobs, lost lives. That was, a, that was a big thing to try and bite off. And a lot of people did it. And part of it was a sexual revolution that little did we know was spreading this virus around that took years for it to incubate to the point that we recognized it, which was 1980. A lot of people, and I say this because a lot of people go like, oh, the 80s, the 80s, the 80s, you know, and yes, they were horrible. It's like walking 
down the street through the city of the dead. It was, it was incredible what it was like to see some of these men that you maybe had even had intimate contact with, but of course not all of them, but, but to see them just shriveling up and dying right in front of your face and developing KS lesions that made them look like a leopard with canes, with friends guiding them because their CMV has blocked out their sight. But there was the time before that when this was hope and light. And yes, it wasn't perfect. And I would never say we deserved what happened. Bro found out in 1984 that he was HIV positive and had been infected in 1980. He was part of a CDC study on hepatitis in the 70s. And when they asked to retest his blood samples in 1984 for HIV, he agreed easily. Back then, they asked patients to come in to receive the results in person, so a psychologist could break the news, because many people reacted poorly, but Bro took the news calmly. So when he told me, you know, I just looked across the desk and I just told him, I said, you know, I'd have been surprised if you'd have told me I wasn't, you know, because I just felt like there was no way that I could defy the odds to that point. And a lot of people had been tested by that point and there was quite clear it was, you know, rampantly spread through the, through the gay community. And I just knew that anything that the other gay men were going to get, I, you know, it would be very strange if I didn't. I'm so excited that the show is now available to stream free on Spotify. If you haven't tried listening there yet, it's free to download and you can use Spotify on any device. It's a great listening experience. You can go straight from listening to Beyonce, to Beethoven, to this podcast. Just search for our show on Spotify and start listening for free. In 1980, that same year that Harry Bro was diagnosed, Vince Chrysostomo came back to the Castro District. He remembers it being like a ghost town, nothing like it had been when he'd come to San Francisco Pride in 1979. Chrysostomo left San Francisco to visit New York City that summer, but the virus's devastating impact wasn't limited to the West Coast. Um, I ended up just staying there for six years, and while I was there, you know, I worked at Macy's during the week, and I worked at a bar called Uncle Charlie's, which was in the village on the weekends, and so I would note that a lot of the people that I would see, you know, I would see them and I wouldn't see them, and I would ask around, and they're like, oh, they're sick, and... So it was kind of a scary time. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s, and people would just disappear. Chrysostomo was diagnosed with HIV in 1989, and while he had drastically changed his lifestyle in hopes that it would help his body fight off the disease, he didn't expect to survive. You know, like, I remember that first summer, like, I joined a support group, and every week when you came back, several people weren't there. And at one point, I think I'd outlived, like the summer, I think I outlived most everybody in those groups. Both Bro and Chrysostomo began doing work as emotional support volunteers for AIDS patients before they were diagnosed, and continued to work as caretakers even after their own diagnosis. According to Dr. Brett Stockdale, a professor of sociology at Northeastern Illinois University and an HIV-positive activist, Bro and Chrysostomo weren't rare. 
the lack of government-provided social services and adequate medical care to HIV-AIDS patients meant that the communities affected were left to care for their own. Many people died of AIDS without ever receiving a diagnosis. Some died in the streets, others died in hospital hallways. At the same time, the media either ignored the AIDS crisis and the massive death that came with that, or it vilified the people that were dying. Gay men, injection drug users, Haitians, and other groups that were being devastated by the AIDS crisis. So basically, gay men and lesbians and other folks uh, found themselves in a situation similar to today. They had to organize to take care of each other. So they formed organizations in cities across the country, organizations like the Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York City, and queers helped other queers as well as non-queers to live and, and in many cases to die of AIDS. So city, state, federal governments were refusing to take action and queers cooked and cleaned for their sick friends, their lovers, their ex-lovers. They brought people to doctor's appointments, visited with them in the hospital, and oftentimes held their hands as they died. And these networks of care are similar to mutual aid networks that have emerged to care for communities that are currently under siege in 2020, under siege from COVID as well as white supremacy. While this caretaking was common, it was also grueling and difficult work. Bro remembers a time when he was always on the clock. Now there was a two week period where my own roommate, and not a partner, I mean just a very good friend that we lived together, began losing it because of AIDS. So there was a two week period where I would meet with one of my clients, and then I'd meet with the other one, and then I would be at home to take care of Gary. So there was no, what do you want to do? It was just, you were on schedule and that was it. And after two weeks, Gary died. Despite all the death and the grief, there were moments of light for both of them. Chrysostomo met his partner and through him and their relationship found his purpose in life. Then I met this man, his name was Jesse Solomon. We became partners and, you know, I remembered some of my friends, like my friends, we were all like, we were dancers, singers, like the beautiful kids in the village, you know, the club kids and stuff. And I met Jesse and I remember one of my friends saw him and he said, what are you doing with him? He's got AIDS. And then he said, he's going to die. And I was like, um, he's not dead yet. So that was, you know, the two years that I had with Jesse were just incredible. And you know, also helping him through it, because he, he died on October 6, 1991. But helping him through that process, I think, also helped me, because I kind of figured out what I wanted to do with my life. For Bro, the HIV-AIDS epidemic unleashed a spirituality that he felt was lacking in the LGBTQ community in the 70s. He became an active participant in Radiant Light Ministries, a New Age ministry that called for love and acceptance of LGBTQ people. There was so much going on and so much joy around us in, I, I don't even understand it today, Elizabeth, how such horrible physical situation could spark such deep and emotion and joy and respect of each other. And it was just astonishing. 
to watch. Along with spiritual movements, activism emerged out of that dark time. ACT UP, or AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, was one activism organization that formed in 1987 to organize for better HIV-AIDS education and more resources from local, state, and federal governments. According to Brett Stockdale, ACT UP's dual efforts to both get experimental drugs into bodies and to address the factors of oppression that led to higher rates of infection in marginalized communities was important and led to real and tangible improvements in the course of the epidemic. I owe my, I literally owe my life to earlier ACT UP protesters because their protests led to the development of the HIV medications that I've been taking since the mid-1990s. Without those medications, I'd be dead. So social movements saved my life, and they and ACT UP and other AIDS organizations ended up saving the lives of, of countless people in the U.S. and around the world. Beyond changing the course of the epidemic itself, Stockdale says that the activism also had profound impacts on the queer liberation movement as a whole. Along the same lines, ACT UP embraced and elevated queer identities and sex positivity. So during a time of intense gay shame, both in terms of how we felt about ourselves, but also the shame that society tried to project onto us, groups like ACT UP, as well as other organizations like Queer Nation, in reclaiming the term queer, positioned LGBTQ identities in opposition to dominant heterosexist society. So rather than saying, we're going to try to fit in and be like straight people, they said, let's celebrate our difference. Let's celebrate the sex that we have as gay men, as lesbians, and let's em embrace our queerness. One of the ways ACT UP advocated for wider cultural acceptance of LGBTQ identities was through encouraging LGBTQ people to come out through their Silence Equals Death campaign. Chrysostomo knew he had to come out to his parents when he got his HIV diagnosis. I did have this thing, you know, where when I got my diagnosis, that the first thing that popped into my mind was like, oh my God, that means I had to tell my parents I'm gay. And to me, that was actually scarier than the actual diagnosis itself. But, you know, I went and did it and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of sad. Well, my mom disowned me and that was, you know, sort of, it's just like something you don't need when you're like facing a potentially life-threatening condition. But I do remember when I, when I told my dad that I was gay, his response to me was, as far as I'm concerned, everyone's gay. Some people just haven't experienced it yet. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and, you know, it was, it's interesting. That was, that was the moment that my relationship with my dad changed you know we became much closer and I, I mentioned that because he died two weeks ago on September 16th and it was probably since this was probably 1989 31 years ago at that we had that conversation and we became very close after coming out Chrysostomo's relationship with both his parents changed dramatically but his mother eventually came around after Chrysostomo and his partner moved to California. You know, one night my mom just showed up in this hospital room, unannounced, and I was like, oh my God, what is she doing here? And she comes into the room, she kind of pushes past me, <laughs> she kind of does, and she goes, I have to see him, and she looks at Jesse, and she goes, oh my God, he's so sick, and she made the sign of the cross, and then... 
you know, we're going there and she looks at me and she said, you love him, don't you? And I said, yes. And she looks at Jesse and she said, and you love him. And Jesse says, yes. And then, you know, she takes both of our hands and she says, I love you both. In the years since his partner has passed, Chrysostomo has continued to work in HIV and AIDS prevention and education, and for most of his career, he focused on the Asian and Pacific Islander community. However, for the last six years, he shifted his focus and began working specifically with long-term survivors of HIV at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Surviving an epidemic has emotional, social, and financial implications that he and other long-term survivors are struggling to parse through. You know, when I came back to do the work that I'm doing now, it became really clear to me. It's like we weren't taught to plan for the future. You know, we used to do exercises that prepared us to die, but nothing prepared us what in the event that we lived. And so, you know, in our group, you know, in the beginning, there was a phrase, envisioning the future we never dreamed of. And people had such a hard time with it. And so I started to shift and it was like it shifted from that to finding meaning and purpose beyond present circumstances. And so there's just been a, a natural evolution of things and a shift from my own perspective. Finding meaning beyond present circumstances amid a global pandemic is difficult. It is particularly difficult for Chrysostomo because COVID has brought with it personal tragedy on top of the general havoc it has wrought on the world. I called him at 9.30, so he tested positive for COVID, both he and my mom did, and they got through the quarantine. And I remember I called him, it was Monday, it was like, I think that was September 14th. And I talked to him at 9.30 in the morning, and he was so robust. You know, I asked him how he was doing, and he said, oh, Vince, you know, it could be better, but it could be worse. And I, you know, I think I told him today's going to be a big day, Dad. You know, it's like you guys are getting out of quarantine. And I'm not sure he totally understood everything. But, you know, he ta and I talked to him about my new job that I was starting on the 16th. And he told me he was proud of me. And he, right before he gave up the phone to my mom, you know, he just told me, you know, just remember we love you. Take care of yourself. And, you know, we're very proud of you. And so I had that conversation. And. That was at 9.30, and I think they called me at 11, like he'd gotten out of quarantine, and he seemed fine. In fact, they said that they pulled the partition, and he wheeled my mom out, you know, in her wheelchair. And he's like, good morning, America, we're back. And I could just see him doing that. You know, that was one of the phrases he used to say, like, very robust. And they were all, they, the staff assembly were all smiling. And... And 10 minutes later, they found him on the floor. And, um, you know, so two days later, he passed. But at least I had, I had that, that conversation with him. When COVID-19 came to America, Chrysostomo was convinced he wasn't going to survive it. It brought him back to what he felt like at the beginning of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. You know, it's interesting because now we're in COVID and the first few weeks of the shelter in place were so similar to that period, you know? It's like the uncertainty, not knowing, feeling that, you know, not really knowing what to make of anything, you know? It was like I was still the same person, but 
you know, and, and how does it come? You know, how does it just, do I just like go to sleep at night and I don't wake up? You know, do I, you know, do I sit down and I don't get back up? So it, it, it's, it's complex. For Bro, it has not been the fear and the anxiety around COVID-19 that has reminded him of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, but how the government has been handling it. Before the HIV and AIDS epidemic, Bro was a patriot. He had faith in America. He had even wanted to join the military. And I think my shock and awe at being tested HIV positive was completely and totally overshadowed by the abandonment that I felt that was becoming more and more apparent every day we were through the 80s as to how we were gonna be treated about this. I remember not long before all that, there was the news about the Legionnaires disease hitting some Legionnaires in, I think, Philadelphia. And I went like, wow, that's how my country reacts. You know, we really take care of these things and find out what the cause was, the air conditioning vents or whatever and get these things handled. And that kind of sticks in my mind as kind of the, the, the last great hurrah before AIDS in, in my world for me personally. So when AIDS hit, I thought, boy, they're gonna be on this in a second. You know, They're not gonna let anything happen. And then it's just slowly became clearer and clearer and clearer that they weren't even gonna talk about it, much less try and help us. So, that, I think, kind of encapsulate, it, it, it was a complete feeling of relief, knowing the truth, finally. Fear, because of the death thing that was in front of me all of a sudden. You know, two years was the max anybody was saying then. And that continued until 96 for me. But I remember more that, I mean, I'd been to the military school. I wanted to be in the military, but I was kept out because I was gay. And I believed in America as a kid from the 50s and all. And then to have them turn their back on an entire group of people that were their sons and daughters, I think it snapped something. I mean, I. So when COVID 19 came to the US, he wasn't surprised at how it was handled. On the large scale, it's just a huge fuck up by this country. I mean, there's not another man that I can think of that would have been president that would have handled it this poorly. And to, to look at what's available to a president of the United States and to conclude that it is a hoax and that you shouldn't take the precautions. You know, I know it's a podcast, but I'm just kind of shrugging my shoulders. I, I, how do you get that across? I mean, how do you, how do you tell somebody that they're crazy when people are, are supporting them in their insanity? I don't know. And when it gets down to be like half and half, which is what we're dealing with today, you know, I'm, <laughs> it's like that, you know, that old union, union thing, it's not my job. It's like, it's not my world anymore. I mean, I pray that I'll just live. I'd like to live 25 more years. Thank you. I'd like to be 100 years old and a long-term survivor of AIDS, probably the oldest one at that point. But I just, you know, I've, I've seen a lot. I, you know, I saw it go Reagan. I saw it go Carter. I saw it go Bush. I saw it go, you know, on and on. We survive and we do it. 
Chrysostomo feels similarly. He wonders how people could have already forgotten the lessons learned from the HIV-AIDS epidemic. We need to embrace, especially the things around race. You know, it's like that's something we haven't gotten right. And like how many pandemics or epidemics it's going to take for them to realize that when you have a public health crisis that's killing people, brown and black people die disproportionately. Stockdale explains that it's not COVID-19 or HIV that discriminates, but that it's our society's response that has led marginalized communities to suffer more from these viruses. And it's still early to tell exactly how accurate the statistics we have are, but we know that people of color and poor people are disproportionately impacted by COVID. And this is because they are less likely to have access to healthcare. Many people have lost their insurance during the pandemic itself. So we have a situation in which the response to the pandemic actually makes people more and more vulnerable to getting infected and dying with COVID. Communities of color have higher fatality rates than white communities. And then the same forces that made communities of color, particularly queer folks of color, vulnerable to HIV and AIDS and continue to do so, also make them more vulnerable to COVID infection. Stockdale thinks there's so much people can learn from the HIV AIDS epidemic and the activism that came from it. To me, those are the important lessons is to look at how the most hyper-marginalized communities are being impacted by COVID and, and addressing not just their immediate medical needs, but the needs that are interconnected to anyone's health and mental health, housing, food, social intimacy, etc. On a personal level, Chrysostomo has made the decision to choose hope this time. During the HIV epidemic, he was much more negative. When offered a good retirement package at one of his previous jobs, he turned it down because he didn't think he would live long enough to use it. This time, despite all the uncertainty, the confusion, the pain, he's choosing to be hopeful. Something happened where, you know, I've been trying to buy a below market rate apartment for first time homeowners in San Francisco, and I won a lottery. And, you know, when the when they called me, my first thought was, oh, I can't do this. I don't even know I'm going to have a job in a month. And, you know, just like I felt like all of my dreams evaporating, you know, and and then my loan agent told me, you know, Vince, at times like this, you need to make choices that are optimistic. He goes, where do you want to be a year from now? He said, you need to make choices that are optimistic because optimism brings hope. And hope, you know, hope will carry you through. And, you know, from that, I said, yeah, you know, one day this is going to be done. And, yeah, I need to make choices to kind of have the life that I want to have as opposed to, you know, letting a second pandemic rob me of any opportunities. He's letting go of the things in his life that aren't working for him and has used COVID-19 to figure out what he wants out of life. He decided to apply for a promotion, which he got and has limited his drinking so he can stay present and really process what is going on. Part of that is being open to the feelings, like your feelings tell you something about, you know, what you're going through. And I realize that that was one of the things I didn't really allow myself, you know, the feeling, the whole epidemic of HIV needs, you know, losing so many friends and watching people die and just really tragic deaths, being witness to just some horrible things that people did to each other. 
people died at a rate that we couldn't really keep up with it and processing it. And so now I am open to those feelings and to wherever it takes me. And so that, that's been very healing. Having seen the ugliness and death of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, Chrysostomo says it's changed how he's chosen to understand and experience COVID-19. What I realized during this period is that you don't have one without the other. You don't have incredible joy without incredible grief. You don't have incredible happiness without sad, without incredible sadness. And so, you know, this is what makes our lives. So, you know, I understand that this is just a part of it, you know. And what I'm grateful for with my father is that I felt like I had a chance to have complete closure with him. I mean, I still grieve. I and mean, as you can tell when I was talking about him today, I got a little choked up. And my boss and I had this conversation, you know, throughout this epidemic, you know, there's been incredible loss, but there's also been moments of just incredible beauty. So we kind of stand in this beauty and this pain simultaneously, and we walk our walk, and we talk our talk, and we live our lives. And in, by embracing that and seeing that duality that happens, I think it's made me, I don't know if it's wiser, smarter, or whatever, but there's a groundedness in that. Bro, having lived through a deadly epidemic once before, offered similar advice to Americans struggling with the ramifications of COVID-19 today. Well, it's so easy to say, and I recognize it's so hard to do, but you have to get past the part of it that causes you to be frozen or inactive. You have to carry it with you forever. <laughs> You have to find a way to use that to motivate you to make it better until you die because there is nothing else to do for a human being other than to steward this planet. <laughs>